Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is volume three of our podcast talking about 25 of our favourite movies from a given decade. Volume three is all about the 90s, baby. This is episode 63, Empire Records. My name is Matt Waters, who obviously picked this movie. I am joined, as always on the endeavour, by Ben Phillips, who, fresh off the pig movie, can now judge somebody else's controversial pick. Ben, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. I... I like this movie, even if I can't say I love it. Like, yeah, I have an affection for it, but yes. it's mostly kind of like a cockeyed saying, like, what were they going for? And <laughs> do they actually achieve what they're going for? And I, I can't say that they do, but like, I, I never not going to enjoy watching the movie whilst it's on. It's yes. just I can't like have a full throated like, yes. <laughs> one of my 25 favorite movies of the 90s yeah well this is you know my my one sentence review would be bless this mess you know like i think it is always going to have an extra meta level for me uh as as a former employee of a record store than it will for like people who haven't worked in this kind of place and on that subject like i should point out like this is like I feel this is like the romantic ideal of what it would be like to work in an independent one. That everyone who works in a non-independent one is like, oh, wouldn't it be great if this is what the store was like, kind of thing. <laughs> and it's, there probably aren't any stores like this in real life. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting because obviously, like, I I do still work for mm-hmm. a record company, not on a store level, but mm-hmm. like, it's interesting hearing stories from people who were mm-hmm. working in these stores in the in the eighties and the nineties and stuff like that, and. Yeah. I, would, I don't want to say it sounds like this, but it was definitely a lot more like laissez-faire in terms yeah, of how yeah. it was dealt with. And well, I think all of all of business has gotten way more corporate in the two thousands. Um, I mean, I mean, it, it's interesting to compare this to something like You've Got Mail, which is mm-hmm. obviously like not of this movie, but for bookstores, but still fundamentally about yeah. we're the small independent chain fighting against the big conglomerate. But obviously, the big conglomerate becomes. Yeah the internet like five years after this movie comes out and now it's a point of matter where like almost like the small independent is on the rise again and the big conglomerate brick and mortar store is on the decline yeah they're Um, like i feel i mean again i I, former employee i'll say what i want you know i think big across all sectors i'll put it that way of retail i think you're seeing stores are like fighting for survival in this digital age and it's like sell everything like cater to everyone sell a ton of product because yeah like you said like specialist interest i mean i think the rise of indies in everything is it has come back like in in music in movies in games in in you know everything uh in, in shops like you are seeing a slight rise in independent it's just a case of can you afford <laughs> to rent a building um more than anything else um but there are, i think there is always that sort of place for the the specialist market but it is just it's very like chef for me it's a comfort movie it's a movie that like if if i feel sick or 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 sad or or just i want just a lazy cozy weekend in bed or something empire records would be high on the list of of movies to throw on and it it is not a well-reviewed movie (laughs) it's also not a movie that made any money whatsoever uh, it is, however, 90 minutes long, which is always a win. I think the second shortest movie we're covering in this decade. One of the shorter movies we've covered ever. My thoughts are known on long movies, but yeah, that's a positive by me. So it's directed by Alan Moyle, who did Piss All Else, Pump Up the Volume, Love Crimes, Very Little Else. Written by Carol Heikinen, who wrote The Thing Called Love, and again, Very Little Else. She she's writing that new like animated movie though, isn't she? Like she is a credited story writer, I think, on Ron's Gone Wrong. Oh, okay. If you've seen the like trailer for that, like it doesn't look good, but like I was like, Oh, she's She's working. (laughs) She's working. Whether or not this was like something she pitched like twenty years ago and they kind of had to go like, Oh fuck, uh WGA rules mean that we have to give her credit on this Mm -hmm. on this list because she actually wrote it years ago or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so she's a former employee of Tower Records, which went away, I think, 10 years to the day almost of when this movie came out uh, in 95. And fun trivia, she made more from this film than the film made because she was paid $325,000 up front, a further 200000 when it actually got made into a film, 
1% of soundtrack royalties, 5% of merch. The movie made $300,000 against a budget of 10 million, which must make it the biggest box office bomb, uh, or certainly the least money earning movie we've ever covered. Uh, The lowest gross, that's the phrase I'm actually looking for. But why don't you give us some context for some movies that did make money and and just really put into context how bad that opening weekend must have been. Yeah, don't worry, Matt. We will someday cover Lucy in the Sky. (laughs) I hope so. I can redeem Noah Hawley. Uh, Yeah, so the, the, the weekend that this movie came out, it opens up against two new movies, both of which have hung around in the... in the. I, I would actually say that all three of these movies have hung around in, like, the public consciousness. Not to the same level, but, like, mm. all three new opening movies definitely, like, have stuck around some of the other movies that I'm going to list. So, number one, with $14 million, is seven, the weekend this movie opens. Okay. Uh, number two is Showgirls, with $8 million. Okay. Uh, I'm hard, number... why aren't you? Uh... <laughs> And at number 37, you've got Empire Records, making $150,000 on its opening weekend. So that so, half of it's total gross. Yeah. Excellent stuff. Like, uh, so what what did happen with this? Like, I am genuinely I, fascinated, because this I thing opens know. in 87 theatres. Yeah. So per average, per cinema gross of like 1.8 thousand. Mm. Well, uh, I mean, New Regency won a bidding war for it. They assumed it was going to be a big hit. They passed on Clueless because they thought we've already got a, t- a teen movie that's going to be a hit. We don't need Clueless. And then I, I don't fucking know. I, I don't know if it was just like incredibly poorly marketed, if it had like a really bad trailer. I mean, nobody in it was famous at the time. I don't think anyone had really even heard of, of even the most famous people in it now, Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger, like, would they have been in anything of note by this point? I don't... I mean, Liv, Liv Tyler would be known because obviously nepotism. Of course. But... I think I think she's on backing tracks of, like, one of the songs in the movie as well, like, mm. just because of her dad. Yeah. But in terms of her performance as far as this in her career, this is her third credited film role. Yeah. Um, and for Renee Zellweger, it is her... She's been in Days and Confused, but obviously Days and Confused is not yes. a big movie. Like she's still several of them had been in Days and Confused. I, th- I think two, yeah. if not three, of the cast were in it. But then the next year she has Jerry Maguire. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, like to directly compare it to Clueless, like that cast weren't really like all that well known. But you're getting people who they're looking at for the roles who were. So I don't know if it was just like from the jump. This just was made by a less experienced I mean you know that that's made by Heckling who who has a great deal of experience this is like a director and a writer who had done very little so far very few famous people very few of them went on to do anything after I mean I don't know that may be unfair but Zellweger and Tyler become big names um you know Anthony LaPaglia has his like steady job on Without a Trace um Rory Cochran pops up here and there over the years (laughs) But the rest of them kind of don't really go anywhere. I don't know. Just maybe it's just it was just a shitty production, um, and it. I, 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 I just can't imagine because obviously the other thing that comes out of this is apparently the soundtrack is actually quite successful, or at least yeah. some songs on the album are quite successful. Like I know mm. that the um, that the Jim Blossom song mm-hmm. it's like number five at the US. Yeah, they did something to make sure that they got the Jim Blossoms on the soundtrack as the lead single. Uh, They like changed which label were releasing it or something to get access to them. Um, I love the soundtrack. I, you know, there there is the official soundtrack, and then there's the like here's every song that's in the movie, and I I have a playlist that is all of those and everything. I was I was gonna say because like the soundtrack album itself is not the best cuts of the things in the movie. Not like. It, it feels like it's like super 90s but in a way where like mm. I watched the trailer the night before we watched um, this movie and all the artists they're mentioning like it was like don't know them don't know them don't know them like n- none of them have stuck around in like the public consciousness yeah in terms of like like because they're like super 90s like, I think Cranberries is the only one that's like got a legacy outside of yeah this very specific era of music but then you watch the movie and you have the stuff like This Is The Day by The Burr and oh, you have so Money That's What I Want and you have Romeo and Juliet by The Dire Straits and Video Killed The Radio Star by The, the Boogies like there's some like great cuts in this movie mm-hmm. it's just none of those songs like, all the songs that kind of like are actually like pieced around a scene or a like a memorable moment in the movie don't 
end up on the soundtrack. I know. It's 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 bizarre. Like I, I think my favourite needle drop in the movie is Plowed by Sponge, which is what starts playing when they they organise like the street party at the end. And you get that like little guitar riff as someone's walking down the street. Yeah, and and <laughs> and the the while they're all dancing at the end and everything. It, it, it's insane. The yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, a, it's a great soundtrack, but it's like you, to do it justice, it really needs to be like a two CD one. But I'm yeah, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. like the budget of the movie prevents them from being able to get like <laughs> the the songs people have mm. heard of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you know, like they've got an ACDC song in this movie, and and. You know, as you said, Dire Straits, uh, Flying Lizard. Uh, what, why like. isn't Guar on the on the soundtrack? Like? Yeah. Oh, not on the. Yeah, not in the movie. No. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like you're Guar in the goddamn movie, and you don't have them on the soundtrack. Yeah. Like it's it like it's it's those little things that feel really weird about the soundtrack. Yeah. Like, but again, like the, the song choices are great. It's probably like a super iconic album. It's just it's just quite funny to think that like. If you made the equivalent movie in the 2000s, would you have a similar list of artists who mm. have not stuck around? I mean, I'm sure that's like every single like Channel 14 drama mm. of the time. Like, if you went to Skins or something, you'd be like, oh, <laughs> no one remembers this band. Yeah. Yeah. And you've got like, you know, Pixies, like spin off band, the Martinis, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> and stuff like that. You got better than Ezra. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's. Uh, yeah, okay. I like the soundtrack. Uh, if you do some, oh, no, yeah, di- no, if you no, do no, some digging to build the proper version, it's a good soundtrack. But it is a weird pick of stuff that makes it onto the physical CD they sell versus stuff that's in the movie. The Schwala, like yeah, okay, yeah. So, so I'll, I'll spring into my first kind of like minor bugbear is mm-hmm. because this and, and it spins off the music and it's because this movie has so many characters and. So yeah. much of the movie is about their mental headspace and the things going on in their personal lives. It doesn't really have time for the kind of like fun music chats that you'd expect from this kind of movie. And like the things that I do really appreciate about this movie are like people's reactions to music. Like all the times mm. when they're at the CD tower and they're like changing over CDs and exercising <laughs> vetoes, and you get a feel for like what the different music tastes of the of the employees are at like really nice little moments. Yeah. And I really like the little post-credit scene where they're discussing. They're like, just talking about yeah, our Pixies have got better guitar riffs than um, I kind of remember who it is, but yeah, they're like having a music argument and yeah, like that character Eddie James Wills who just played a stoner in, a, in several things in the nineties. You do get that quick scene where he's like talking vinyl to people and you know oh we've got Clapton in like every possible configuration on vinyl, but yeah, it, yeah it. It is surprisingly light on music talk for a movie that has so much music in it and is set around... You know, it's the one to compare it to, obviously, is High Fidelity, which is just wall-to-wall, those chats. The reason I have never really connected with High Fidelity like I do this... The lead character's a piece of shit, quite frankly. Yeah, I mean, that, that is the fundamental issue with High Fidelity. I will say I, I really, really enjoyed the, the remake of High Fidelity. They did Zoe oh, Kravitz. Yeah, with Zoe Kravitz, like last year, which is really good and kind of gets into a lot of the things that I didn't like about High Fidelity. Because obviously, that, again, that is the central issue of that movie is that John Cusack is a piece of shit and mm-hmm. it feels really, really icky. But like yeah. the, the things I do enjoy about that movie are the little side bits with. Top five Jack records Brown. and yeah, 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 yeah. like the, the in-depth music chat and like the TV show maintains that, but also yeah. modernizes the music taste so like it doesn't feel quite as like <laughs> almost gatekeepery. Exactly, I yeah. Like I came up in this era, therefore this is the only acceptable music kind of thing. Yeah, and I I've been meaning to watch the show for exactly that reason. Um, and not to say that some of the characters in this movie aren't kind of shitty, but like I think you get the free pass that they are all playing teenagers, and teenagers are shitty, so like it feels more excusable than the grown ass men who are less they don't have that pass. And like the adults in the movie are kind of you know, like Joe is a is, is a good dude. Um and, and cares for his stuff. Like oh you've got so much teen drama happening, like AJ's big confession of love to Corey and, and the issues that come with that of like, you know, a lesson I think a lot of men have to learn is just because you have feelings and want to make this big gesture, you don't have a right to like inflict that kind of thing. I don't know. I don't know how to express it properly, but you know, there's this kind of thing where feelings are dumped on women and then there is resentment for not 
Like, she's clearly having a bad time, given what happens just before that confession. And he ignores that and just dumps this on her, and then is, like, moody with her for not responding immediately. <laughs> yeah, um, like... But it's true to life, that's how it yeah. goes! Like... <laughs> It does. It does nail all those emotions. And th the thing that I do really like about the chemistry between the cast is that, like, even when you have like Deborah, Gina, and Corey all being kind of like snippy at each other and obviously being like hmm. not one hundred percent vibing with each other, there's still a level of affection for each of them. Yeah. Like they are still like a family, but it's like like yeah. we can dunk on each other, but like. Yeah. we will defend each other from outsiders exactly and like you know again to, to come back to it like I work in an office now every day I miss like I mean it, it's rose tinted glasses for sure because when I was in it I probably didn't feel this way but like you do have that sense of camaraderie and that family when like when you've got a good group of, of in a store and like you know you're all going through it together and everything and, and yeah like all of that I think they nail and you know the cast they're all like really touchy-feely with each other and everything so like it it's not like any of the like emotions come out of nowhere or anything like that and they just all have a nice bond is, uh, is this one of those movies where like they they stick everyone in the house together so that they can create <laughs> a bond yeah like a spider-man homecoming yeah I, I think i think i did read because obviously this movie is notorious for the amount of content that was cut from it like there's yeah. presumably like a, a 40 minute longer r-rated cut that includes a lot more swearing than this film and a lot more references to like drugs and mm -hmm. and those kind of things that also features Tobey Maguire who's <laughs> cut from the final movie but they said that like people were misremembering whether or not they had the like beachside property that they were supposed to have whilst they were filming this mm. and obviously like one of those things where like yeah that's the best way to to endear chemistry with kind of young actors is to basically stick them in a house where they have to like put up with each other for mm. for two yeah, movie. yeah, and and they come across as uh, all authentically friendly and like just little things like AJ and and Deborah, like his caring for her and like trying to like make her dance and stuff like that um, is all really good and yeah, like I, I think at one point it was supposed to take place over the course of a weekend. Although given how much of the plot revolves around Rex Manning Day, um, an event that is sort of ironically celebrated in real life by uh, a lot of record stores on April 8th. Um, yeah, the first the first time I saw this movie was a Rex Manning Day screening in a, in a repertory theatre in London. There you go, there you go. So I assume, basically, there might have been more from, like, the fateful day where Lucas takes all the money and then goes to cash in, or maybe something happened the next day. Because, like, they're all in the same outfit throughout the whole movie, pretty much. Yeah, and... yeah the, costuming, the costuming doesn't change, but I'm sure you can probably figure out, like, is are there things happening when Rex Manning isn't there that's actually supposed to be like I mean, prep for Rex Manning there? I don't yeah, know. like it, it, it I, I would be massively intrigued to see like a shooting script for this, but I feel mm. like no one has got one of those. But maybe like yeah. you find Rory Cochrane and see like, can you can you <laughs> feed us the shooting script for, yeah. for Empire Records just to see how much is gone? Yeah, and I should also point out like. There have been many cuts of the movie over the years, and I think even the version I watched last night is different than the one I first saw. Like, there are definitely scenes in there that like, I've never seen this before. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. Like, Anything in particular jump out? I'm intrigued. Because um, the one I watched was definitely the one I saw in cinema. Yes, yeah. Like, I remembered all of it. I think Joe does a chin-up on, like, a uh, <laughs> like a fire escape or something while he's stressed. A handful of, like, tiny little interactions between i don't know like mark and, and eddie um i don't know I, I there's just i mean it may just be that like it just didn't stick with me and it did this time or something but i do feel that like so like i i own this movie digitally and every now and then they do patch movies i know that sounds fucking weird but they do do it and i was like did they is this a different version than the last time i watched it why, um, why would but that's the thing is like why would someone care about this movie obviously I, I assume this movie has made some amount of money like probably not enough to be in the black but like mm. <laughs> no. it's become it's become a cult classic and enough repertory theatres are playing it yeah so presumably well it's like you know there, there was like a Blu-ray release and I wonder mm. if like when the Blu-ray version came out they updated the digital version to match it or something like that I, that I, makes sense. I, I do not know but you so, mentioned money and we should go back to uh, money from 1995 probably I, I did just one thing before we got on okay. yeah. I just want to ask so obviously did you watch this movie before you started working at the record store no 
No, so this was this was like a like probably a, while it, I was at one of them. I've I've worked in more than one. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe while I was at one of them, but certainly not before I started. No, because I mean, that would probably endear you to it more, wouldn't it? Like the yeah. idea of like, oh, this is my situation, but like they're cooler and they can play whatever the hell they want. Well, and... yeah, like it, it's kind of what I said at the beginning. Like it's like the romantic romanticized ideal of like you work in one that is a little bit more corporate. And you're like, oh, wow, to work in one of these American ones where they wear what they want and play what they want and behave have, how they want. <laughs> have, like, headbanging sessions at nine o'clock in the morning. <laughs> yeah, and, like, oh, I mean, okay, fine, I'm, I'm just going to do this now. Like, the, the stuff about working in a store, like, it does just really hit you. Like, something as small as, like, choosing the playlist or and the differences between what you play before you open and after you close... Certainly, nobody would play a Kanye West album and get told off um, at like seven p.m. when the shop's closed, but someone walked past and heard swearing and complained. That would never happen. <laughs> yeah, just like little things like that, and like I love that you know they have this game for like they each get an M M&M and M, and then one of them draws an M M&M and M, and if you have the color, you get to pick the music. And they all hate what he's chosen, but they're all singing along to it because. That is just how it goes. Like you are, you you hear so much music on a daily basis that even if you say you don't like it, there is some weird subconscious affinity for it, and it is in your brain and everything. And like, oh, yeah, there are 100%... someone's put blur on again. You know, that kind of thing. there are one hundred percent albums that like I would, I would, and have never put on since I stopped working yeah. in a store. That I'm like, if I heard it now, I go like, oh, that was so and so's like favorite album. Exactly. Put on like, all the time. Yeah, like you, you know, your colleagues like go to is like, I would always put on the Cure, the Chemical Brothers, you know, stuff like that, and like. I know that employee X puts on, you know, <laughs> blur. You know, who, or... you know who the jazz employee is. You know who the one who knows who like all the all the safer work rap music is. You know the one <laughs> who likes the latest indie release. Like, <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like, oh, so good. Um, so I love that aspect about it. Um, the thrill of being trusted to close and count money for the first time is one I definitely identify with. It sounds fucking pathetic, but like being asked and, and entrusted for the first time to close up and to count the money and all of that it that this place closes at fucking midnight is a trip <laughs> but yeah um just little things like that celebrity signings oh boy do i have some stories about some celebrity signings yeah i probably shouldn't name them for reasons but there was one where we of course you put on their album while they're there and nobody noticed that it had gotten stuck on repeat track. So the same track had played like four times in a row, and their manager came and said, could you um, make it play some of the other songs? And we hadn't noticed, because the whole album sounded the fucking same anyway. <laughs> um, that was a good one. I... <laughs> we... we <laughs> so they came from like the backstage area, and it was a door that's in like heavy use like when you go from the shop floor to the stock room you know so there's people in and out constantly and there was a huge queue for this artist uh of predominantly women and they went insane when they finally came out but people who weren't them when they came out of the doors got booed including myself um and that was quite a feeling being booed by like you know hundreds of women <laughs> yeah like i i mean again this is so like not the normal experience, but just so much of this. Uh, the threat of a dress code, I lived through that for sure. Um, luckily, something happened that stopped that from happening. But, you know, the stuff about no visible tattoos, no piercings, all of this sort of stuff. And it's like, this is half of your work. This is more than half of your workforce. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, just every one of these things hit me real hard. But... Um, long tangent we still have not gotten to the money so we should yes. do that now right so worldwide box office for 1995 i'm just going to preface this the list i'm looking at is from the numbers.com it goes up to 122 uh which is 10 million dollars empire records is not on this list i could not <laughs> tell you at all what the final placement of this movie is maybe if i went to box office mojo but even then that's cutting off an awful lot of the top stuff but like not in the top 100 movies released in the year of 1995 bummer uh, which is why we're discussing the money this week. <laughs> yeah. 
number one, you've got Die Hard with a Vengeance, the one with Samuel L. Jackson, that mm-hmm. everyone like memes the sign nowadays. Right. <laughs> number two, Toy Story, which I feel like has the most like legs of any movie in 1995. Like, I don't mm-hmm. think there's any movie that's got more cultural cachet than Toy Story. Yeah. Uh, Goldeneye, Pocahontas, Batman Forever, Apollo 13, Seven, Casper, Waterworld, Jumanji, My Precious Babe, Ace Ventura, When Nature Calls, Braveheart, Outbreak, and Heat. Waterworld made that much money? Yeah, I think it's still a bomb. Wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, they, the sets they built were enormous, but like, I'm shocked it made more money than something like Braveheart, which was charting for, like, dozens of weeks and stuff like that. But, hey, I mean, yeah, a different but, time. <laughs> Brave, uh, Waterworld has a budget of $175 million, a total box office worldwide of $264 million, ah. uh, but ultimately only $88 million of those dollars came from the US. <laughs> Jeez. And I guess you, it just appealed to an international market. <laughs> it just appealed to an international market, but also, obviously, the studio gets just fundamentally less money mm-hmm. from the international box office because you've sold it on to other distributors yeah, and stuff like that. So Maybe they uh, just did their job better or marketed it better <laughs> or the lack of a recognisable America makes it less like... Maybe they should have sold Empire Records to the Waterworld International <laughs> advertisers. Yeah, justice for Empire Records. Yeah. Can we, right, can we spring off into my big bugbear with this movie? Go on then. So, Break my heart. The movie opens, Lucas is closing. Yes, he is. In the middle, like, he, like, he listed royalties. Oh, this. We, we had some intense sexting about this last night. <laughs> he lists the three rules he's not allowed to do for, for Joe's stuff. He's not allowed to pl- use to touch his drumsticks. He's not allowed to smoke the cigars. He's not allowed to drink his beer. Smash cut to him doing all three of those things. Of course. Counting the money, putting it in a, in a little baggie, and then opening the drawer and finding that Empire Records is potentially going to be sold and franchised into a music town. He then takes the daily earning. Possibly try, daily. Possibly daily. <laughs> of $9,000. Of $9,000 to Atlantic City yeah. to basically play craps, double the money, and then double again to try and save the store. Mm-hmm. Does double it. He does double it. He then, he then snake eyes it and loses $9,000 ultimately, or $18,000 at that point. I have never understood why people do things like this. Like, if you've doubled it. Why don't you just bet half of that, and then at the absolute worst, you're walking away with what you came in with. I understand gambling is a complex you know, thing, but still, it's fucking stupid. Anyway, carry yeah, on. Yeah, like, just continually make $18,000 at a minimum, yeah. if you can. <laughs> um, so, I have some knowledge in how much record stores earn in the year of our law 2021. Yes. $9,000 on a Friday is a decent chunk of money. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. Bearing in mind, it's a Friday, yep. presumably, kind of summertime. Yeah, they're all yeah yeah. Like they're all getting ready for college. Mm-hmm. People have probably gone away somewhere else to like celebrate the summer, so maybe the footfall's down a little bit. <laughs> this yeah. doesn't include peak sales of Christmas, where you assume that the numbers start to go up quite impressively. Yeah, or if key just, landmark releases, or the yeah. weekend, or anything like that. If you just assume that the store makes on a base level nine thousand dollars a day for three hundred and sixty-four days a year. That's $3.3 million in a year. Yep. They're struggling, Ben. They, they can't afford to keep the lights on. <laughs> Literally, the lights are off most of the movie. <laughs> I understand that, like, there's the businessman who's probably, like, taking, like, 50% of the cut. But he's also going, like, oh, I can't be rich selling this. I'd be richer if I sold bathrooms. <laughs> it's like... I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> you have $3 million, like, pre-tax and all the other things and maybe maybe like they're taxes. just getting incredibly unfavorable rates on f- from the supply chain you know like and also like obviously the u.s have got like utterly bizarre tax rulings in terms of sales tax and stuff like that i where... think this is set in delaware which has no sales tax <laughs> well, then <laughs> <laughs> sorry that is an incredibly niche thing to come swinging with but um i for some reason in my head it's sticking out to me that delaware has no sales tax but again, America, sort this out. Every price in the UK comes included with VAT. Like, the price that you see is the price that you pay. Sorry, Delaware has no, has no property tax. Uh, so, so, if they own the building that they're in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I don't think they do. <laughs> but the man does. The, the man that is complaining about how little money it makes. Yeah, just, just like, and obviously, like, 
the advent of Amazon, the advent of streaming, all of these things like have put a death knell in yeah. properties. I'm sure Restore that was making $3.3 million in the 90s is making much, 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 much less than that in 2021 if it manages to stay alive. Yes. Maybe this is based on what Tower Records was making at the time. Uh, yeah. And maybe but, maybe it's two days earnings, maybe it's three, maybe it's a week. So, I mean, it, a week would be low. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it does strike me as high for a day's earnings. But, yeah. Because there, there are a lot of people in the store. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they do have a lot of employees and not all of them are in because some leaflets get put in pigeonholes at the end. Yeah, the the insanity of the amount of employees of this movie when, so this movie obviously opens with Lucas losing the money and then everyone comes into the day's work and so you get introduced to what you think is the core cast of like mm-hmm. Joe and Lucas and Mark and AJ and Deborah and Gina and Corey, mm-hmm. and then Liv Tyler's stepdad shows up about <laughs> half an hour in. I don't want to dwell on him because apparently he is an abusive, stalking person, so fuck him. But wild that at the time this movie was made, he was married to Liv Tyler's mother. Uh, he plays Burko, Francis Coyote Shivers. He has ridiculous hair and walks around with a guitar most of the time. Uh, he is 11 years older than Tyler and 13 years younger than Tyler's mother. But yes, at the time of filming, he was her stepdad, which got him in the movie, which gets his band you know, a feature moment with Renee Zellweger doing backup vocals and stuff. Um, but yeah, like, well, just you insane. Think you, you think you've met the whole cast, and then, like, just more employees yeah. keep just showing up throughout the day, and you're yeah. like, when is this going to end? Like, obviously... Well, they've got, like, a morning shift. If, if they're open till midnight, it makes sense. But no that, one like, has gone home by then. Well, that's because they have the party. Like, like Corey isn't supposed to start until later, but she shows up early. Marco right, okay. shows up late, Eddie shows up late, Deborah shows up late. I assume that's the closing crew. Mm-hmm. I think Lucas is, oh, Lucas is the night manager, but he's there because he's in trouble. Um, so I think the idea is that it would be like Lucas, Burko, Deborah, Corey, and Eddie. Okay, that makes slightly more sense. It's just that weird thing where like there's not much time delineation of like where they're at in the day. I know. And so when like you've been introduced to like six characters all of whom have their own interiority and problems in life and stuff like that yeah. and then the movie's just like here's some more people who are going to start showing up and <laughs> here's Deborah things. about the 40 minute mark <laughs> and she's bringing some pretty intense stuff with her <laughs> so rather than like I mean in terms of the plot I mean you've already hit it like you know he loses the money they're desperately trying to save the store from being franchised etc etc so rather than trying to go through like the plot and the favourite moments I thought we'd just go through the cast um, because encapsulated within them are some good moments. So, like, you know, the adult Joe, Anthony LaPaglia, I love how constantly furious he is, but at the same time, he has this really nice dynamic with them, and, like, I actually kind of find it fascinating that he has... Because it's an independent, and it's the 90s, but, like, the behaviour of this group, <laughs> this group of employees is insane, and he's just generally chill with it and it's, it's just really nice to see isn't he is mad at them but he never is in like an abusive way i mean he does beat up lucas very briefly near the end but lucas is trying his luck at that point but in general yeah he is very tolerant of them like he has his nice little moment with deborah where he like she's hiding out in the listening booth which those don't exist anymore just by the way yeah too much too much damage going on to stock if you have listening booths yeah yeah. People do not care about property that doesn't belong to them. That's fucking insane. We we had um we had tables with phone chargers built into them in, in the store I worked in and you didn't. And fucking like teenagers, twenty year olds would burn them with lighters and it's like this is helpful for you. Why are you doing this? <laughs> So that all got shut down. But, but yeah, yeah Anthony Packing is good. Like yeah. uh, the thing that I like, not a tiny character moment, but I do deeply appreciate. Like he has a healthy outlet for his stress. <laughs> like yes, drums away uh, the pain. <laughs> drums away the pain. I love the moment when like they, he starts drumming and they're all like, "Oh shit, turn whatever music we've got off. We're gonna open up the like store speakers and play his music through the door on the te- mm-hmm. on the on the um, intercom." Yeah, I love. Yeah, like. Cochrane and Whitworth airbanding to it is really good. Just that th- there are just so many little pockets of joy like that throughout, where like all this like melodrama is going on, and then a certain song will come on, or 
something will happen and they all just come together like you know the shoplifter and and this drumming moment and yeah yeah and it's, it's that what which makes me like wish there was more actual yeah. music content in this movie but as as we're going to get down this cast list it's like oh there is just no room for the characters <laughs> to kind of be characters like everyone is kind of condensed down to yeah. a personality trait which isn't like a negative thing i think some characters do get to like come out of it and there are some characters who it works really well for like i think mark actually doesn't suffer throughout the movie because it's just like he's just a stone of metalhead yeah is <laughs> like who who is here for like comedic moments yeah. it's it's the dramatic stuff that they try and tag on that kind of feels a little bit underbaked because mm. There's like four characters who have the dramatic storyline, and you're kind of splitting focus from everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a couple of Ethan Embry, uh, who plays Mark's line reads, are utterly demonic. <laughs> Floyd is very cool, and Shoplifter screamed so loud his voice cracks. Just fantastic. Just a, a real weirdo fondling a random woman in a listening. I think that's actually. Um, the guy who plays Rex Manning, I think it's his stepdaughter, but the, the like ballerina who's listening to music and he's like holding her leg and stuff like that. But hey, him naming his his name is spelt with a K and he wants to name his band Mark with a C because it's a psychedelic trip thing. To which Lucas replies, "Always play with their minds." Yeah, <laughs> Mark is just the clown, I suppose, uh, to go to when things are getting heavy. So yeah, Rory Cochran as Lucas. Just this 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 performance has the energy of a man who thinks he's about to become a superstar, <laughs> and like he's he's worked more than most of the people in it. But it, he's in Argo. He's in yeah. the Best Picture with it. Yeah, and he was on one of the CSIs for like a long, like fifty episodes, something like that. And you know, holding down a job for fifty episodes of television—that's not for nothing. But yeah, it does really have the vibe of someone who thinks he's going places. Like it's so off kilter, and like. You know, like I don't know, like he's forbidden from leaving the sofa, so he's got like one foot on it, and then like he's carrying the cushions around with him, and <sighs> dropping from the ceiling, and chasing the shoplifter around, and all of this stuff. Like, and he's... Yeah, all of his motions where like he knows exactly where the shoplifter's gonna go, so mm-hmm. like he like leans against walls and like cuts him <laughs> off in all these different places, but also like this is like the most unsecure record store I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. Like having worked in like a couple different locations like yeah. those back doors are like yeah hard bolted shut like yep. you cannot just like wander through the back door of the record store yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah and and you know uh renee zalberger is gina like she provides like the running commentary while he's chasing him around and everything and um i also love that she puts on um money by the flying lizards and like this one goes out to our good friend lucas and she's like uh, she's going, Joe's money <laughs> um, just to troll him given that her assignment was hoe it up she is incredibly charismatic in this performance oh yeah Renee Zellweger like understands it like you can tell why Renee Zellweger in particular in this movie is a star mm-hmm. like she understands the assignment for a character who is fundamentally just written as be a bit slutty mm-hmm. And I mean, like, what what is her arc? Like, it's not like she's like going through the entire movie going like, people don't pay attention to me because I have sex too much. But what I really want to be is a singer. Mm-hmm. Like, that all comes out very very late on, <laughs> and she achieves it immediately. <laughs> Manifest destiny. But it's, um, it's just weird. Like the, the the first chunk of the movie is just like Corey being like, I need sex advice from you because Rex Manning's coming, and Deborah being like. Oh, you get more intelligently shorter your skirt gets, and then <laughs> and then her her arc ends with her singing on the rooftop. So it's like a, a, there is like you've yeah. gone to, from point A to point C. I don't understand where point B was in the yeah. Like somewhere in here is that like both friends are jealous of and resent the other kind of thing. Like you know, Gina is more of a free spirit and 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 goes and gets the things she wants, while Corey is super repressed. But then Gina resents Corey for being you know so smart and like. Yeah, all of that, but that is like you have to really piece together moments um, up and up until it comes out into the forefront of the scene. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But yeah, um, yeah, every, like there's so much subtext this movie until the movie suddenly realizes that like <laughs> we need to make it all text. <laughs> we need to make it all text, like and like you know she. <laughs> 
bless her for doing it. So, like, they're all going to have to wear these, like, orange aprons, like the baristas almost, when they're music town employees. And she goes into the back and emerges wearing nothing but her pants and one of these. Uh, no bra. And she is dancing around in just that. And then Rex Manning comes in and she says, Welcome to Music Town, may I service you? And it's just, yeah, what a, what a great little fun character. Her dancing around and everything and lip syncing is, is really fun throughout. And it is a shame that, like, you know, again, the, uh, her character pit, I, I'm, I'm sure it didn't say it in exactly these words, but if you imagine everyone's handed their script and, like, their character brief and hers is basically, you're going to be a hog. Um, and again, I would never use any of these terms in a derogatory fashion. It's just, you know, this is how they are presented. And that she revenge sleeps with Rex Manning who is Corey's big crush, and, like, that's one of her big scenes, and it's like, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I think there is a lighter edge to this than if it had been written by a man. Like, I think yes, the, yes, the feminine yes. touch in the script doesn't make it come off quite as skeezy as it could be. But Absolutely. I, there is just that overwhelming sense of, like, even at this point in time, like, sexually liberated women kind of have to be mm-hmm. demonised in some way. Yeah, and I, for sure, like, none of it comes across as, like, like, even when she's wearing basically an apron and, and and underwear, like, they're not, like, I mean... It's not it's not leering. Like I mean, the, I guess the... there's a bit of that when Corey tries to give herself to Rex Manning, but, like, you know, Gina, who is the character that is coded as, like, you know, the fun, slutty girl, like, it's never, like, right, everyone, let's all have a look at Renee Zellweger. Like, she is given a lot of, like, the funniest lines and, like, moments and stuff, so... Yeah, I think I think that definitely helps this Rambo woman. But yeah, mentioned Liv Tyler a lot there, but like her story is a trip because, you know, <laughs> she's clearly she had a childhood crush on Rex Manning when he was on a TV show. She has decided for whatever reason into her <laughs> slightly more adult life, uh, that she wants to lose her virginity to this like six I don't know, fifty year old dude who who's many years past being famous. She she has it all planned. She borrows a bra from Gina because, you know, she doesn't own anything racy or whatever. And she plans it all out and she screams at Joe to get what she wants. Also, his his response to her screaming of just like, okay, is, is fan- or all right or whatever, is great. And then when he actually, I guess to his credit, he tries to talk her out of it. And then he was like, okay, let's do this. She's disgusted. Well, that's, that's my main argument is that, like, Rex Manning doesn't really do anything bad mm-hmm. in the movie. Like, everything is kind of, like... I assumed he was actually trying to put her off it. Like, because he's like, you know... He basically says, I don't think you want to do this. You're a sweet girl. And then he's like, okay, fine. And he, like, starts to unzip his trousers. And then he's, like, pretending he's going to put blue cheese on his dick or something. And I assume that was just to, like, make her go away. But then he does sleep with Gina. So, like... <laughs> I don't know. But, yeah, like... Liv Tyler gets, I suppose, the biggest dramatic arc in the movie. Um, because you've also got her, like, getting into Harvard. The the, the revelation that she's doing speed to help her study. Uh, the AJ storyline. Like, yeah, she has probably the most going on. Which makes sense if she was the most famous person in it. Again, I, I think she's decent. It's the Liv Tyler conundrum. I think we've brought this up. It's from almost project to project, it's hard to tell if Liv Tyler is good or not. <laughs> Yes, like, the most fun I've ever had watching Liv Tyler is definitely The Leftovers. Yeah, yeah. I think that, for me, was like, okay, I think overall probably good. This has decided it. But there is some stuff she's real bad in. She chooses some real bad projects. I think she's fine here. I mean, there's a lot of whisper-talking and sort of melodrama, but I think that was the assignment, and she did it. So, And it is early in her career as well. But I mean, it, it is just... Like, the Rex Manning thing is strikes me as weird. Because, obviously, like, I don't understand what she's expecting. Like, possibly, like, she's expecting more romance from this. But, like, yeah, you walk into a room, you take off your, like, clothes and, and adjust your underwear and are, like, propositioning a guy for sex. And so mm-hmm. his immediate response is, like, I, I don't know, I presume, like, he's just like, well, go on, give me a blowjob. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think it's just being confronted with the harsh reality of what you've built up in your head kind of thing. And, like... Mm. 
I don't know if she thought he was going to like make passionate love to her on a well, on a silk is, bed like, in the stock room. <laughs> yeah, the thing is, I feel like that needed like her like imagining what it was going to be, which is yeah, like, her, like yeah. propositioning him and then him being like, ah, oh, yes, of course, and then. Yeah she's replaced in the music video that we see yeah, for expanding yeah, yeah. on the bed in the, in, <laughs> on the beach or whatever. I love that. They, they asked for 17 seconds of footage and the guy who shot it gave them a 4 minute 30 full music video. <laughs> Excellent stuff. I do think Max Caulfield, he plays Rex Manning well. Like, the guy knows that he's washed up, he is resentful, he is embarrassed of himself. You know, all the people coming in for the signing are like, oh, I loved you 20 years ago, or this is for my mum, and like, you know, all of this sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, that's my main argument, is that, like, he plays it well, that he knows he's washed up, he knows he's, like, a little bit of a has-been, he's a little bit grumpy about it, but, like, he doesn't do anything that other characters don't initiate. Like, it's not like he's, like, predatory, like, trying to sleep with all the girls. Like, no, both, he... Gina, both Gina and Corey come to him first, yeah. and he's like, right yeah sure i've done this before like he's yeah. just kind of laissez-faire about it like when he pops lucas in the face it's because mm. lucas has been a dick like up to that uh, point yeah yeah and lucas is being no it's aj he punches aj oh it's aj he punches and, aj yeah and, and they and it's because they're holding aj back i assumed because uh, yeah, he, oh, he yeah, like leaps yeah. off the stairs to attack him and then they pull him off and then he punches yeah, him yeah oh, that, yeah that's exactly it like he punches aj because aj's mad that he slept with gina and is obviously like hurting Corey. Uh-huh. but it's just like what's he supposed to know like he doesn't know that <laughs> Liv Tyler's got a he hasn't adapted to the, the the interpersonal dynamics of this store he's never gonna see again yeah like, like that's it. I'm not saying that Rex Manning is a good person it's <laughs> no just, it's just wild to watch it and be like functionally he's like the antagonist of this section of the movie but like from his perspective nothing he does is overtly villainous yeah. or abusive I, th- I as think long it's as, kind as long of... as the girls are over 18 of course which Corey is not but Gina might be, yeah, and uh, yeah, I think I think that feminine touch of, of of the script it makes him. I don't want to say he's nuanced because there's not that much to him, but it is like a less purely demonic character than you might see in this role. Um, and I, mean, I think I think that's what helps when people do like Rex Manning Day because if Rex mm-hmm. Manning Day was like a sleaze ball, like <laughs> trying to sleep with every single person, it's less fun to do a Rex Manning Day celebration and have a Rex Manning impersonator yeah. come <laughs> Yeah, it's just like this guy's kind of a goof and he knows yeah. what his lot in life is and everything. Um, we mentioned AJ a few times. Johnny Whitworth is probably not quite are we, up. Are we, are we just completely skipping over the, the amphetamines? <laughs> okay, fine. Yeah, go on then. Sorry, I just the wildest scene yes. in this movie is the amphetamine scene. They have one shot mm-hmm. of her taking a pill. Yes. Like, Five minutes before this? Mm-hmm. Almost as if they always had it written down and they were like, wait, we should probably show that she does this before we reveal it. Um, yeah, so, like, obviously you have Corey. Like, yeah. she's 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 the goody two-shoes. She's into Harvard. Yeah. Um, I, a weird move to have her not being the, um, the person doing the taxes for the business. That feels like... <laughs> I assume Correct. that's an age thing. I think Deborah's supposed to be a few years older. Probably has worked there longer. Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just just a weird thing to like. That feels like the kind, like if you're having her be like the the smart girl, yeah, the smart girl. Like you have her do the taxes. None of this seems like off kilter. It's just like she's an overachiever who's like prioritized her education over like her sex life in the comparison to Gina. Mm-hmm. They're both jealous that they wish they were living the other's life. Yeah, all fine and dandy. And then it comes out that like. Corey's hooked on amphetamines and this mm. is the only reason why she's able to like be as effective as she is and yes. then the movie becomes in like an anti-drug PSA in the middle of like what's going on like this has come from literally nowhere <laughs> I don't understand why this is in the movie I, th- I mean I don't know if it like becomes a PSA like they, they do talk about it but I don't think anyone like fully condemns her for doing speed like I don't know. Like they, they, it certainly is addressed, and Gina throws it in like a, an accusatory way. But it's not like anyone's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you didn't tell me you're doing drugs." And like, there's no scene where she's like flushing them all down the toilet or anything. It is kind of just left there, and, and they all well, just that, say I mean, their that, personal truths and stuff. Maybe that's like the issue. It's like, like it doesn't come up afterwards. It's yeah. not like like it's, it does feel superfluous yeah for sure as i mean i'm sure it is in the like because obviously the the 40 minutes of cut footage is fundamentally like all r-rated stuff like there's 
yeah. I think I think they say that like the characters are all doing drugs a lot more frequently. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and like maybe you get more of Liv Tyler doing speed and like you know the ramifications of it and like you know like like yeah. If this turns out to ultimately be an MPAA decision where it's like, well, we can have two uses of drugs in the movie without it going over PG thirteen, mm. and they decide it has to be. The scene where we got Guar in with <laughs> Mark eating the pot brownie, and it has to be. You could probably get away with that one though, because you know they always just code like drug users as just weirdos anyway. And I mean, it's just like, know. what if Mark's just weird and daydreaming, and he's also, got his like, the, special the, brownies? <laughs> the wildest thing about that scene though is that like when like unless he's that is like his second brownie of the day. <laughs> obviously, edibles take a while to kick in. No, so, TV like, land, baby. <laughs> You are drunk or high the exact second the substance touches your lips, and then you're fine five minutes later. Yeah, um, that, 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 like to me, like to me, that is endemic of yeah. like issues with the movie is that like I think it might just be like they cut too much to the bone. Yeah, when they I like cutting content. Obviously, like, I don't support long, long movies, but I would be fascinated to see. They, there's no way they have the clout to restore the footage, and some of it might not have even been. Well, they so cut it out in edit, so it must exist, but it might there have been is, deleted. There is a 17 minute longer cut, I believe, okay. which okay. is like 107 minutes. So obviously not all of the footage, and I'm sure it doesn't like resurrect entirely cut yeah. characters. I just, I just would be interested to see author intent, as it were. Yeah, so Johnny Whitworth plays AJ. Uh, I think basically he is the actor that is not up to his role, but bless him, he tries, like... He's supposed to just be the kind of like the good looking young one who is, you know, generally well meaning. He's an artist. He's a misunderstood artist. He loves Corey. He's going to tell her at exactly 1.37 pm. Also, it is precisely. He looks at his watch. He has a pocket watch, which, what the fuck? And he looks at it and it says 1.30 and then it's exactly seven minutes before he tells her. That's, I like when films do that. But yeah, like, you know. I guess you get by because there's such an abundance of characters, but given he's sort of presented as the, like, young male lead, like, I guess it's actually Lucas, but I don't know. I just think this is one of the ones where I'm like, you probably needed someone ever so slightly better than this for this role. Um, yeah, like, because he's, he's kind of the character that is in a lot of characters' stories. Like, he's got exactly. a lot of interactions with, like, Lucas and Mark and Corey and Deborah. Mm-hmm. Like, like, I don't want to say like he's like the lead, but he's definitely like, yeah, the I guess I guess he's like the audience surrogate character where yeah, like, yeah, like he's got the least personality, so you can read the most onto him. Sure, like his entire shtick is like he just loves Corey, and that's kind of the extent <laughs> of his characterization. Yeah, true, true. I mean, you know, he's not like they all have chemistry. To go back to that of like, you know, he is very touchy-feely with all of them and like even in the end credits when he's like dancing with mark like that is an endearing moment and stuff and of course he makes his big profession he's grumpy she then loves him anyway and then he gets the girl and he goes to art school in boston so that they can still be together of course it works out that way but you know it's a it's a silly sort of fantastical teen-centric movie so you know, it is what it is. The last person I really would talk about in depth probably would be um, Robin Tunney as Deborah, who, you know, debuts in the movie, as I said, like, you know, 35, 40 minutes in, immediately has to do an intense haircutting scene, which you assume they could only do once. I assume that's her real hair she's cutting and shaving. I, I, I have to assume. She is in the craft a year later. I don't know how much her hair's grown out, grown back by the time she does that. My memory is she had short hair in it, right. but... Oh. You know, it's possible she filmed it first, but it came out second, I don't know. But yeah, you know, she she arrives with self-harm scars uh, bandaged over that they don't actually reveal for quite a while. She shaves her head immediately. Everyone is concerned for her. She has this ambiguous relationship with Burko, as I said. Like, I think they're supposed to be together and they had an argument and then she cut herself so he thinks it's her fault and she says it isn't. And they do a fake funeral for her and... You know, she has a sad moment in the in the booth, yeah. and yeah, it's she has such such an iconic entrance. Yeah, that it's kind of a shame that the rest of her story is kind of a little bit of a wet fart in terms yeah. of like it's like oh, you think that the movie's going to start tackling stuff, and again, maybe this is just victims of the cuts where discussing mental health and suicide attempts just doesn't hold up in a PG thirteen or whatever it is. Yeah. But like, 
it feels like we never get to the root cause. It's just like she's just nebulous. She says depressed. the generic things about I'm tired of being invisible and, and all of this. And it's like, you know, obviously there are teens suffering from depression and, and, and everything. It would be almost silly to pretend not one employee of this store is, is depressed or anything. But yeah, it does definitely suffer. Like she gets to kind of be the one to talk Warren down, Warren the shoplifter. <laughs> who I guess we will talk about, but yeah, like, I actually think in some ways, like, you know, it sucks that they left that story sort of underbaked, but then, like, it does contrast really nicely for when she does have the moments of brevity, like, when when she's the one to calm Corey down, and she does the, like, oh, Rexy, you're so sexy kind of thing. Mm. Like, no, yeah, I, I think all these, all the characters nail the comedic stuff, it's yeah. just the dramatic stuff kind of, like, yeah. comes in sporadically and so weirdly. It's like a weird jolt where you go, like, oh, okay, we're now discussing suicide. Yeah. Oh, we're now discussing amphetamine addiction. Oh, we now have, <laughs> like, the, the like and, and to, like, pivot into Warren, like, you yeah. have the character who was a jokey shoplifter all of a sudden walking into the store with a gun. Yes, <laughs> he shoots up the place with blanks. <laughs> yeah, like... <laughs> Uh, like just the angry young man character like Lucas not a fan of Lucas I guess maybe he's doing it sarcastically or ironically but like linking his choices like he's shoplifted rap and metal and Whitney Houston which is for his girlfriend he swears sort of linking I didn't like that I didn't yeah exactly linking rap and metal to his deviant behavior it's like no one who works in a record store would think that so my hope is that the intent was for it to be ironical, but uh, maybe not. But yeah, like coming back in and like shooting the place up with a with blanks, and then it turns out all he wants is a job, and AJ makes him a little badge, and yeah, with his with his incorrect name on it, because obviously he introduced himself as Warren Beatty. Yes, <laughs> my name's not fucking Warren. Yeah, I mean he's so angry, constantly yelling at people. I do think that Rory Cochran plays all of his scenes with him really well when he's just like, Warren, no, that would hurt and stuff like that and trying to get through to him and stuff. And yeah, I mean, it, it's very silly and very melodramatic. You know, he's picked up for shoplifting and then hours later he's walking in with a gun, which admittedly has blanks in it. He's then taken away again and he's back within like an hour to attend their big party. The they, they do say every time the police come to take him away, it's like, well, there's not much we can do. Like, yeah. he didn't get away. He, did, he got away with like four CDs, but you caught him and also the gun had blanks and you aren't pressing charges, so... Yeah, yeah. and then they, you know, they... they they have their big rager and AJ sells his art and they sell beer and, and Deborah has a thing that says give us your money uh, and Joe buys the store and then they have a big dance on the roof and the big dance on the roof just makes me indescribably happy as the ver play and they will just dance and I assume they were given no direction and they just danced. Probably my favourite moment is the, the hot girl circle with Stoner inside. <laughs> it's like a rare moment in nature. <laughs> Not a place to find profundity, not a place with, like, expert direction or, you know, like, revolutionary writing. There are no acting performances here to, like, really be like, oh, wow, this is really underrated work. However, just the warm fuzzies throughout the whole thing. Um, yeah, I, and I, I could like, go watch it right now, and I'd be happy. <laughs> yeah, like, the, I know so many people who deeply love this movie. It's just, maybe it's because I came to it a little bit too late or maybe because there are certain things about it that like just kind of like jolt me out of it i'm mm -hmm. like i can't hold it to the same steam but it's like it's yeah. not a movie i'm gonna complain if someone throws on like it, yeah. it has a nice mood and tone to it all that like you can't you yeah. can't deny and yeah. it's one of those weird ones where like you see people coming for, for it knives out and you're like it's weird like i i am kind of more <laughs> I don't know why this is like your punching bag. Like, why is this a movie that you decided like to beat up when it's yeah. so earnest about everything that it's doing? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, it's like potentially ill-advised in some of the topics it's handling, but again, like the the earnesty and the and the the passion behind it all kind of mm. pulls it all together to make it just incredibly watchable. And, and I think the, the nature of it just being, it's just thing happens, thing happens, thing happens. Like even when you have a shitty moment. It's you're not going to be in it for more than like three minutes anyway, and you just move on to some other silly thing that's happening in the store. <laughs> I would love to see the longer cut um, as intended. I would like to see some of those bad moments get more time to breathe or be explained better or, or get more context. But 
yeah, at the end of the day, I just love watching this little group of weirdos hanging out. And I miss work, working in a store, even though I <laughs> was on minimum wage and scared for my job every day. Um, yeah, Empire Records. So next week, we go from the second shortest movie on the list to, I believe, the longest. One of the longest movies we will ever cover. However, even I must give it up for the masterpiece that is Heat. So that will be next week. Maybe we'll get Tom Hiddleston's terrible impression of both Pacino and De Niro as the intro. Just fucking awful. Uh, but that's next week. Benjamin, as always, we must sign off for now. So I must ask you, will there be movies? Uh, no, but there will be dance parties on the roof to the... the or to the from the... Bye, everyone.